about two years ago, I don't know how I heard about it. Maybe Kevin Sherritt enlightened me. But uh, he directed my attention to a podcast that, uh, or a, a radio, it was a radio program, but the podcast was there called The Hillsdale Dialogues. And um, um, Hugh Hewitt, uh, you, know, you might know him, he, he moderated one of the debates, I remember, uh, with, uh, with Trump, I think, um, where he was involved. Hugh Hewitt runs at the end of his radio program on Friday, the last hour, he interviews the president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn. And uh, they started a series a couple years ago where they were going through the great works of Western civilization, the great books. And it was really something. It was great. They'd spend, you know, with commercials, they'd spend about 40 minutes talking about, uh, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, Thucydides, Herodotus, um, the Aeneid, um, St. Augustine's works. Uh, it was really something. And, and they, would spend, they would spend like five weeks on Thucydides. <laughs> and uh, for geeks like me, it was like, yeah, wow, this is great. <laughs> So I remember, uh, you know, when I when I at home, one of my what I'm known for uh, is mowing. I'm I'm very often found on a mower. I'm always out mowing, and uh, when I have free time, I jump on the mower. I go mow something because when I mow, I listen. I listen to all sorts of. I listen to sermons. I listen to lectures. I listen to podcasts. That's my alone time. I'm able just to have my earbuds in with earmuffs, and I get away from people, and I just listen to things. And so I, would, I just pounded through the Hillsdale Dialogues. And that challenged me. I said, well, I, I'm an ignoramus. I have, not, I have not read many of these great works of Western civilization, so I will start. I will start and make my way through. So I read the Iliad. And I, I started reading the Odyssey, and then I lost the book. I'd gotten it back, and I had to go back. I was halfway through, too. And I lost the book and then got distracted and forgot. And then... Um, decided uh, before I went on vacation I'm going to buy the, Ilia, the Odyssey and I bought it and I started again. It was a little depressing to have to start, <laughs> to start again, but I, wanted, I didn't want to cheat. I didn't want to go, well, I was somewhere in the middle. So I went back to the beginning and I'm back to halfway through. Okay, so that's where I'm at. But I, I only mention that because as we get to this chapter in, uh, in Acts, it just reminded me so much. You see, I titled the sermon Paul's Odyssey uh, because it just reminds me so much of Odysseus in uh, his journey back from the Trojan Wars, he, he had been fighting in the Iliad, uh, the Trojan Wars, and he's on his way back. He's trying to make it back to Ithaca uh, to be with his, his family. His wife and his son are in dire straits. He doesn't know this, but they're in, they're in pretty bad straits. Uh, some of the gods will come and tell him that they're in bad shape, but he, 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 he assumes that they need him back. He's the king of Ithaca, and he's the head of his family, and he knows that there's great risk while he's not there for all sorts of troubles to ensue. And so he tries to make his way back, but, and, and sailing in many ways in the same waters as Paul is sailing in here and faces just one trial after another, if you know anything about the Odyssey, from, from all these different people, groups that he comes into, and temptations with the sirens. Most of us, we know some of these different stories from the Odyssey of, of Odysseus, you know, and having to navigate his way past the, the beautiful sound of the sirens who... If, if, if he would come in to listen to them, they would eat him. They would eat him, so he has to get past that, and he has to deal with a cyclops, and he has to deal with all these different trials on his way uh, back to Ithaca. And Paul, in this chapter, has his own little odyssey. He's not trying to get home like Odysseus was, but he is just as anxious to get where he is going as Odysseus is to get 
back home to Ithaca. Paul's on a mission, as Odysseus is on a mission, but Paul is seeking to go, to leave everything that's familiar to him and to go to Rome so that he can preach the gospel. And he goes with confidence. At some point, uh, Odysseus will be told, you'll, you'll make it, you'll make it. Over, uh, through overwhelming odds, you're, you're going to make it back. Many of your men won't, but, but you will. And Paul also has been told, you'll remember, even while he was in jail, Paul, you're going you're gonna to make it to, you're going to go to Rome. You're going to make it there. So Paul has been moving ahead with confidence. But boy, as you read the story, there's not a lot of outward reasons to be very confident. I mean, we have seen now in this journey of his, going back all the way to Jerusalem, that this has been a hard road. You've had assassins plotting to kill him. You've had these governors looking for bribes and having to navigate this whole situation. You, 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 you're not dealing with one man. You're being turned over from this guy to that guy to this guy and having to, to work yourself through this at the same time, having in the back of your head, yes, but the Lord said, I'm going to get to Rome. The Lord said, I'm going to get to Rome. He said, I'm going to get to Rome. And yet one trial after another. Well, the trials in some sense here come to a head in this chapter because Paul is on his journey. And this time we, we've, it's a ship and Paul is literally off to Italy. And you, just to recap the story as it was given to us here, Paul is taken uh, along with other prisoners and he's put on a ship and off he goes. Now, once again, Luke is with him, which is very interesting. This is not the way we're used to prison transport. You know, that you're, you're, you're being hauled off to trial and you get to take a few buddies with you. But Luke is there. When it was decided, verse 1, when it was decided that we should sail to Italy. So Luke is with Paul in this journey. And think about that, the commitment of Luke, who, as we suspected before, may very well have just become now his personal physician. Paul has, Paul has had a rough life. Uh, we know from, from 2 Corinthians, as Paul talks about the beatings and the whippings and the things that he's had to deal with. Paul's a pretty broken man, I think, physically by this time. And Luke is, is hanging with him. So Luke goes with him. And then there's also this Aristarchus, the Macedonian from Thessalonica, who jumps in there with them, and he's going too. We assume he's a friend, and he goes with them. They get on the ship, and they're going to sail out. They're going to kind of stick close to the coast. They, they get to uh, Sidon, and when they get there, uh, Paul has developed a relationship with the leader of this uh, 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 Augustine regime, this this group, and uh, uh, this uh, regiment, excuse me, and Julius is his name, and Julius likes Paul. Paul has had this effect with several of these leaders, right? They they like him. There's something about Paul that they they're attracted to, and and he treats Paul very fairly and very kindly, actually. So when they get to Sidon, he actually lets Paul go off the ship and go meet with some friends. Now remember, these guys are are very concerned about the prisoners. If you lose a prisoner. At this point, it's your head that literally will roll. Like a, you lose the prisoner, you die. It's your job to get the prisoners to Rome when they have to go or wherever they're going. And Julius really trusts, trusts Paul. He lets him go off and, and visit some friends inside him. Paul will get back on the ship and off they will go. The weather's turning a little bit. They have to, you know, they, they, they're sailing behind islands to protect themselves from the winds that are starting to turn against them. They're just trying to get to Italy. They get them on another ship, a ship that's sailing out of Egypt. Egypt was one of the great grain providers for Italy and for the Roman Empire. Uh, Go read the book of Revelation. Uh, When you get to like Revelation 18, 
uh, I think it's 18, you hear the commerce that was coming into Rome. I mean, it's amazing. The, the number of ships that would be coming into the harbors of Italy, bringing goods from all over the empire to provide uh, for this massive beastly, beastly empire. Well, this, grain, this ship of grain and wheat is coming out of Egypt, and the centurions say, all right, everybody on this ship, this ship is going to get us to Italy. So they switch them over, and off they go. But by this time now, Paul is starting to get a sense. Paul is a, a seasoned traveler. Right, Paul has been literally all over that Greco-Israel world, not maybe Greco-Rome, but he, he's been all over from Jerusalem, all the ships, walking, riding, he's, he's done it all. And Paul has an intuition at this point. At this point, it's not revelation, at least I don't think so. It just says it seemed to Paul, right? Paul, Paul, has, he, Paul gets a sense. He, he says in verse 10, men, I perceive that this voyage is not going to end well. Paul has a lot of, you know, uh, uh, travel miles. <laughs> this is a guy who has traveled all over, and he looks and goes, I'm sensing from the time we're trying to do this, we're not going to make it to Italy. The weather's going to turn, and this is going to be bad, and it's going to mean the loss of the ship and the cargo and, frankly, the men. Now, he says this, but who are you, you know? It's, it's like you getting on a flight, you know, and going to the captain you know, and goes, hey, I, I don't have confidence in this flight. Well, well, who are you? You know, you, one, you're a prisoner. Why don't you pipe down and get in the back? You know, what do you mean? Hey, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm of the thought maybe we should not do the trip. I mean, you could see why a prisoner might say such a thing. Well, of course, they don't listen to him. It says the centurion chose rather to listen to the guy who's driving the boat. It makes sense, right? That the, the, you, know, you tell the stewardess, hey, I don't have confidence in, in this flight. It's going to go well. And the captain says, no, we can do it. He's not going to say, yeah, but the passenger back in 37B is pretty confident that we're not going to make it, you know, and the, the captain starts biting his nails. I mean, this is what he does for a living, right? So the, the, the captain of the ship and the owner of the ship both agree we should press on, and the, 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 uh, the centurion says, I think, I think we'll just press on. Thank you, Paul, for your, for your opinions on these. But, of course, they're going to get a big I told you so. Okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come. So they... They head out, and, and frankly, as they get out there, the, um, the waters seem pretty good. And I think they're thinking, oh, this joker back here who thought he knew so much. But it doesn't take long, and the winds begin to change, and the water becomes tempestuous, and things start to fall apart for them. Uh, at some point, they, they uh, well, actually what they did, they came into a harbor, and they, they hunkered down there for a little bit, but they decided they couldn't stay there for the winter, and so they had to make a very difficult decision. Do we, do we stay here or do we go 40 miles? It's only 40 miles. If we just get 40 miles, we can get to that next, to that next harbor. And that's when Paul said, Don't, I, I wouldn't do this. But they decided to go out, and then the, and then the storms come. <clears throat> and uh, when the storms come, of course, it, it gets so bad that they feel like they're going to be you know, shattered. The ship's going to be shattered. So they start throwing things overboard, lighten the ship. They start dropping anchors to slow down the, the, the tossing of the ship. They, drag, you know, they just try to drag those anchors so we calm the ship down a little bit, but literally throwing everything overboard until finally it says they give up all hope that they're going to survive this. At which point the I told you so comes out. <laughs> when Paul says, 
or Luke says, for days there was no sun, and at night there were no stars, which means that the captain has no idea where he is. There is no compass. There is no sexton. There is no way to judge where we are if we do not have those stars and if we do not have the sun. We've lost the coast. We don't know where we are, frankly. And the storm is raging, this unbelievably awful storm, this nor'easter, as it's called. Right? So these heavy, strong winds are coming down and beating the ship, and it's over. At which point, Paul says, I told you you should have listened to me. But now, he says, have courage. For an angel came to me last night, an angel of the God whom I serve. And he told me that we will not perish. We will not lose a man. We will make it safely to shore, but we're going to run aground on an island. Now, this also is kind of bizarre because where they are, there are really no islands at this point, except one. And they run into it. And they start to think, maybe we should listen to this guy, Paul. And we're going to find that because Paul says, look, this is going to happen. We're not going to lose a guy, but we're going to be grounded on an island. So we're going to get shipwrecked here, but we're going to survive this thing. And so what do we do? Well, the waters begin to calm, and they start to sense that they are getting near land, so they start plumbing the, the depths, and they say, oh, we're at 20 fathoms. Oh, we're at 15 fathoms. Hey, I think we're approaching land. Hey, this is great. Now, just about that time, as they sense they're getting land, a group of guys are like, we're getting off of this boat. So they lower down the dinghy, to get out, and they said, we're just going to go, um, you know, we're going we're to run a quick inspection around the boat just to make sure everything's okay. But that's not what they're doing. Under the pretense that they're just going to go check the boat, these guys are getting in this little boat to get the, get the heck out of there, right? They're just going to row to land quick and get their feet on solid ground. And Paul jumps in and says to the centurion, hey, I see these guys going down here. I just want to let you know. The promise I told you about that none of us die is only in effect if those guys are on the boat. Just saying. Okay, now at that point, the Roman centurion has a decision to make. Do we listen to Paul or don't we listen to Paul? Now, we didn't listen to him when he was in 37B, and he told us we're not going to make it there. I think we should listen to him. And so they command that the guys get back up in the boat, and they do. And then they cut the ropes and let the little dinghy go. Nobody is getting off this boat because Paul said the only way that we survive this is if everybody's on the boat. The clouds lift, they see the land, and they just think, oh, yes, oh, this is wonderful, this is great. But just at that time, according to Luke, they hit this area where two different seas come together, and there's a reef there, and they run aground on that reef away from the land. Just when they're thinking, we're going to make it, they hit this reef, and now they're caught in this reef, and the waves are smashing into them and breaking the ship into pieces. So now they got another decision to make. What do we do? A lot of these guys can't swim. So they think, well, we got to kill all the prisoners because we cannot just go everybody for themselves, get the heck out of here, because who knows if some of the prisoners go and we don't see them again, and then our heads are going to roll. So you know what we do? Kill all the prisoners and then 
we escape. But because Julius cared for Paul, he said, we're not doing that. Everybody who can swim, jump overboard, and get, try to get yourself in. And everyone else, take a plank from them. I mean, think about this situation, right? The, the waves are smashing. There's rocks. Grab a plank from the ship if you can't swim and try to get yourself into land. And so they do, and they all make it onto land. Now, we're not to Rome yet. Odysseus is still, still on one of these islands, right? He's not made it, but as of now, we're all surviving. Now, a couple observations here. There's not too much that I want to say from this. It's, a, it's, it's the story of Paul's journey. There is a lot that we could do if we wanted to do an allegory of this. There's a lot of wonderful allegories that we could draw from this in terms of ships and anchors and storms and all these kinds of things. But what we have is just Luke recording this last journey of Paul now to Rome. But there, there are two things really that I want to bring up. One is the theme that we've been looking all the way through Luke, and then the last one I just want to think about providence. So the first theme, the first point I just want to draw our attention to, again, are some of the echoes of Christ. Now, we don't have Paul standing and, you know, calming the storm. So there's not, again, it's not a one-for-one. One. It's not like a reduplication of the life of Christ in the Apostle Paul. But nonetheless, we do have these people in this frenzy and Paul, the servant of the Lord, in the midst of an outrageous storm with the calmness of Jesus. Remember, in, in Matthew's version, in all the versions of the story of Jesus in the boat at the, uh, in the storm, what was Jesus doing in the storm? He was sleeping. It was the fishermen who, whose hair was on fire, you know, coming to him going, we're going to die, we're going to die. They were completely in a frenzy, but Jesus, the carpenter, was asleep in the boat. Now, Paul's not asleep in the boat. But Paul, even throughout this story, as Mark read it to us, exhibits a calm and a confidence in the sovereignty of God. Paul knew that God had said to him, you're making it to Rome. And therefore, even as the storm is beating the ship, even as the men are like, we just got to kill everybody and get out of here. <laughs> Paul is calm. Paul's preaching. Now, boys, let's talk this over here. If that happens, we're not going to, you know, Paul seems very much in control. Not only that, just before that, he says, listen to me, everyone, you guys need to eat. This is a prisoner, okay? The prisoner is telling the men, you haven't eaten for 14 days. We need to eat. If we're going to survive this thing, we're going to need to eat. I mean, Paul is the leader. Even of the captain of the ship, even of the Roman centurion, Paul exhibits that kind of calm. And his calm is in the Lord. His calm is in the, the promise that the Lord had made to him. And I believe, by the way, that Jesus' calm, when he's in the boat, is in that same thing. You say, well, yeah, but Jesus knew he was God. I, that's, a, that's a really heavy, weighty theological conversation as to what Jesus' self-consciousness was at that time. But one thing we know about Jesus is he trusted his father. At the point of the cross, as the wind and the waves are smashing around him, Jesus exhibits a calm, a calm even in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's sweating drops of blood under unbelievable anxiety. 
even as the voices in the trial are coming against him. Remember, it's interesting that in the Psalms, the metaphor that's used for that kind of chaos is the billows of the ocean. You've ever been or seen the ocean when it's kind of stormy. That is the metaphor that's used for the clamoring of the nations against the Lord and against his anointed. So there's Jesus being tried by Caiaphas. There's Jesus being tried by Pontius Pilate. And the crowds like waves smashing against the ship are saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But what was Jesus doing when the wind and the waves are beating against him? You'll remember like a lamb before it shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. He's absolutely calm in the presence of unbelievable horrors going on on that day of trial. And then he goes to the cross. And now he's being nailed to the cross. The ship is breaking apart at this point. And people are saying, get out of there. If, if you're the son of God, come off. Jump out of there. And what is Jesus calm? Where does the calm of Jesus come from? What is one of Jesus' last words? Father, into thine hands I commit my spirit. And I think that reveals to us the sense, the source, if you will, of the calm in the boat. It's not just, well, he was calm because he knew he was God. It's not that simple. Don't forget, he's truly human. As man, he is calm in the boat, not because I know I can calm this with the snap of my fingers if I want. He was called ultimately to go into that storm. And it was going to take much more than a word to calm it. It was going to take his own death. But Jesus' calm and his peace and why he could sleep even in the midst of the trouble that was raging around him was because he had confidence in his Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I think Paul, in a very Christ-like way, is exhibiting that here. And I think, given what we've seen throughout Acts, Luke is providing this story for us. Why is he giving us all these details? Why is he giving us this story? I think in some part it is to bring echoes back of the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's interesting. I don't know if the language struck you. I mean, the first time I read it, it just struck me anyway. This language about Paul and the food. That Paul decides, hey, we all need to eat. And so then it, was, it, it said, uh, this is down there in 34, Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is your survival, since not a hair from your head will, uh, um, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it, he began to eat, and they were all encouraged. It's interesting. We're on the we're on the second to last chapter of the book of Acts. This is how Luke ends. This is how the story of Jesus ends. Now, again, not exactly. It's not he broke the bread and they all recognized Jesus, or they broke bread, gave it to them, and they all became converted. But again, I think Luke is, is giving us a, a resonance, a, a, an echo, again, of the life and ministry of Jesus. That, again, the story of God's people is not disconnected from the life of Jesus. So you've got Jesus in his ministry. Okay, church, go do your thing. No, but how does he end the gospel in Matthew? Go into all nations. Go do these things. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will send you my spirit. 
I will abide in you by my spirit. And I believe that one of the lessons that Luke is giving us in the way that he tells the story is that Christ is here. Christ is with his people. His people have a very Christ-like ministry. And so it's not the same result. It's not to be a reduplication, but how can we not hear the echo of that? It's, it's the way Luke's gospel ends when he's with Cleopas and the friends and he's telling them a story about how Jesus all these things in the Old Testament had to happen to him and then they get to Cleopas' house and it says and then he I mean he Jesus that's not usually who breaks the bread right who breaks the bread is the host of the house right who welcomes you in he comes into Cleopas' house Cleopas will break the bread thank you very much it's my house imagine coming into a house you take the bread and go okay let me give thanks for this and break it and serve you usually when you're traveling like this right it's, it's, it's not the prisoner who takes the bread and says, all right, boys, let's eat. But in this case, it is. So, again, just echoes. And I really encourage you, if you ever go back and read Acts, listen for those echoes that draw us back to the life of Christ. Christ is at work within his church and within Paul. Secondly and finally, to think about the providence of God here. This is important for us because, as we've said um, before and as we've thought about even today in our in our um, word of exhortation, we go through storms. Right, the wind and the wave batters us, and yet we go through these storms while having promises, amazing promises, um, and sometimes those are hard to hold in balance together. Paul has a promise: you're going to make it to Rome. And yet, time and time and time again, if you're just viewing it in real time, you're like, yeah, but are you? Are you really? I don't see how you make it through this situation. I don't know how you get out of this jam. But Paul exhibits the confidence that is needed in order to lay hold of the promises of God. And that's not always easy to do. The disciples lost their minds when they were in that boat. I mean, there, there are promises, if they really believe he's the Messiah, then there are certain promises about Jesus, but apparently they've forgotten those, or they, they just hadn't thought about them in the midst of the, of the dangers that were swirling around him. This is what happens to you and to me. Again, I go back to our table talk discussion on, on our salvation. How do we know we're saved, or how can we have confidence of our salvation? You know, we have many wonderful promises in the Bible. You know, as we've talked about in John chapter 10, no one who's in my father's hands will be plucked out. Or Romans 8, nothing can separate me or separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Or in Philippians 1, you know, he who began a good work in you will continue it unto the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, like Paul, we have great promises made to us. And yet there are all sorts of contingencies. There's all sorts of things. I mean, think about this very passage. The Lord says to Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. And then he says to him, no one's going to die on this ship. And Paul goes out there and speaks with utter confidence. No one's dying on this ship. Guys, an angel told me from the God that I serve, no one's dying on this ship. We're going to make it safely. But you should have listened to me. But, but that besides the point, we're going to make it safely. But then these guys try to lower themselves down in the boat. And Paul goes to old Julius, and he says, Hey, Julius, let me just tell you, those guys lower themselves in that boat, the promise is off. The game, game, it's off. It's off. The promise doesn't stand now. Now think about that. 
The Lord made a promise to them. Everyone's making it there safely. Paul sees these guys lowering and says, however, if they end up going down, this is uh, in verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. He's not talking about you can't inherit the kingdom of God there. That's not what he means by saved. Those guys lower themselves down. The promise is off. We're going to perish. Or at least you're going to perish. He doesn't say we all. He does say them. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes and kept those guys back up on there. It's an amazing thing. Same thing down in verse 34 with the food. Therefore, I urge you, take nourishment. This is for your survival. It reminds us that providence doesn't work in this sort of... Um, uh, uh, it, it just it's spoken and therefore nothing matters now it's a, you know you're gonna make it so you don't have to eat you don't have to act wisely you don't have to make good decisions you don't have to obey nothing it's just it's a done deal fade to complete it's over don't worry about it no Paul says lower the boat not gonna happen don't eat you're not gonna survive we're not, we're not gonna make it and this is a tough reality for us to lay hold of, to hold on to the fact that God's providence and his promises do not undermine or blank out all historical contingencies. We still must act wisely. Now, what's interesting is they all make it. They all make it. But they make it because they heed the word of Paul, who says, don't do that. Hey, you better eat. We have to remember this with providence and with the promises of God to us. They are sure, but it does not mean, and nowhere does the Bible teach, therefore it doesn't matter the decisions you make. Your decisions matter. Our heeding the word of the Lord, our obeying him matters. Ultimately, your obedience is not what saves you. The promise of God was to them, but the promise required that they listen. The, the promise required that they trust. And that they follow. Now, one of the things we need to, we need to take two things away from this vision of providence, this challenging and tricky and, and nuanced doctrine of providence. We need to take on the one hand, providence still requires human responsibility, it still demands human responsibility. Human responsibility is not the source of the end result. God's sovereignty is, but nonetheless, in his sovereign providence. Human responsibility is, is taken, uh, gives, uh, must give an account. So we, let, us, let us be sober about that. Hey, God promises you the gift of salvation, but you do need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You do need to make your calling and election sure. The Bible's filled with passages like this. But you must do it knowing that it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do. You must get your rear end back in that boat because you trust the Lord. That's why you got to get in this boat and stay in here because you know the Lord is the one who will save you. That's why you must obey. You must eat because you know it is the Lord who will save you. So on the one hand, we got to take our responsibility seriously. On the other hand, we really need our confidence bolstered. And that's the tension. We want to hear, what we would love to hear is it, do, it doesn't matter one iota. There are no contingencies. It just is, but it, that's not how it works out. There are things they had to do. 
and by God's sovereignty they would do them. But there are real challenges we have to get through. The other thing we have to do is have our confidence bolstered in the midst of every twist and turn. I mean, this story is just filled with so many, yay, oh no, ah, oh no. I mean, even to the very end, ah, land, er, <laughs> just, it's right there, and then, oh, now what do we do, you know? And this is the way, you know, because you know your lives. We could all share. We could just take time in here to share our stories and where we shipwrecked and where we ran aground and where we didn't know what to do with the weed on the boat and what to do with the prisoners. I mean, like, this is life. These are the challenges of life. And what the scriptures teach us here is that it requires trust in the Lord in the midst of that. It requires the calm that Jesus had, the calm that Paul had, trusting in the providence and the sovereignty of God our Father to see us through. He's promised you, you will get to Rome. Hang in there. Weather the storm. Deal with the shipwrecks. Deal with the fasting. I heard a, I just said this to our parents the other day. Um, you know, we had a parent orientation thing until our faculty, actually. I heard a, I heard a, uh, a speaker say, he was giving a talk on mathematics. <laughs> As I said, I'm, I'm a geek. Um, and he was arguing why children should learn arithmetic. And he said, children should not learn arithmetic because one day they will, or maybe engineers. You know, this is what I, I, I tell our math teachers, please never give that answer. All right, when, when students say to you, why do we have to learn this? Okay, this is what, this is what kids do. Why do we have to learn this? When are we ever going to use this? Uh, do not say to them, well, maybe one day you'll be an engineer and you'll really need it. Don't say that because most of them are going, nah, I'm not going to be. So don't because then everyone who's going, no, I'm not going to be, says, okay, good, I don't have to learn it. Don't do that. It has a value in and of itself. And the speaker said, why, why should we teach children arithmetic? And he said, we need to teach children arithmetic because we need to teach them that we live in a world of resolution where, where disharmonies can be and will be harmonized. So we need to give them problems that don't work, where they're not resolved, and then teach the children that they can be resolved, that we live in a world in which resolution and harmony is possible. Because our God is a God who resolves disharmonies. So we give them the problem, 2 plus 2 equals 5, and it just doesn't feel right. We all go, ooh, don't say that. Because in our head, we just want the resolution. So we put a minus 1 at the end. We say 2 plus 2 equals 5 minus 1, and we resolve both sides of the equal sign. But he said what's really important is that when students go through their years and they learn 2 plus 2 equals 5 minus 1, and then they start to get to algebra where it's harder to solve and you have to live in that lack of resolution longer and longer and longer and then solve it and go, ah. Oh. And then you get to calculus where it might take a week to do, or then you get to those problems that Einstein was solving, and you see them in the movies where it's like four chalkboards of a problem, and it takes a lifetime to solve. That he argued that we need to teach our children that there is disharmony in this world, and then there is resolution because we serve a God of resolution. We serve a God of 2 plus 2 equals 4. 
and they must learn to dwell in the lack of resolution longer and longer and longer. To me, this is, this is the beauty of teaching Christian education. You're not going to get that at your local public school, right? But it's, it's as Christian educators that we get to say math is about much more than just problem solving. It's about much more than just formulas. It's actually about building into your mind and heart the notion and the capital T truth that our God is a God of resolution. This young girl who's battling with cancer is in the midst of a horrible disharmony. Their family is in the midst of a really massive problem and they cannot see the answer to it. And the math, he argues, teaches you to dwell there. Knowing and believing that resolution is not only possible, it's certain. Because our God is the God of 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know this will be resolved because 2 plus 2 is 4. But this might not be a simple problem. Just like calculus problems are not simple problems. And, and you might have to linger there. And you have had issues in your life. I know you have. And I have too. Where it was simple. It was 2 plus 2 equals 5. And all you had to do was throw that minus 1 on there. And it ah, felt right. It resolved. It resolved itself. But you and I have also faced problems where the resolution is not so simple. And it might take a week to grind it out. It might take a week to get that resolution. It might take a month. It might take a lifetime. There are certain things that are not going to find the resolution. There are certain ways in which you are not going to make it to Rome in this life. But because 2 plus 2 equals 4, because, because we serve a God of order, because we, saw, we serve a God who does promise to resolve all disharmonies and reconcile them all, we can have confidence like Jesus. Father, into your hands. You are the God of 2 plus 2 is 4. You are the God of resolution. You are the God of bringing harmony out of disharmony. Therefore, even in the worst chaos, as the storm is raging around, I can say like Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because that's the kind of God you are. I've seen it. I've already seen the problem solved. You know that. I've already seen the, the most unbelievably complex calculus problem solved in the cross and resurrection. In the cross and resurrection, the greatest disharmony, the problem that you thought could never, ever, ever be solved of sinful humanity and holy God, two sides of an equation which just can never balance. How do you ever balance this problem? You and I have seen that problem resolved in the cross. And in the resurrection, there was the minus one. It was just, ah. And that now must set the tone for all of our storms. It must set the stage for all of our disharmonies. It must set the, the stage for all the, the twists and the turns and the, and the groundings in the reef and the breaking apart of the ship and the lack of food and the, the threat that they're going to kill all the prisoners and the mob that's waiting to assassinate you and the judge and what if he gives a terrible verdict and all those uncertainties, all of those disharmonies must be approached under the ultimate reconciliation and harmony of the cross and resurrection. So what do we take from this passage? We take that in terms of providence. Your decisions matter. You need to prayerfully make decisions and seek the wisdom of the Lord and humbly submit yourself to his providence and obedience and repentance when we mess up. 
That matters. That matters. But do all of that knowing that you do it unto the Lord who is in absolute sovereign control. He was getting Paul to Rome by hook or by crook, by smooth sailings or by storm, by feasting or by fasting. Paul was getting to Rome, and he will bring you home. He will bring you home. Trust in the God of resolution in the midst of your storm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of order, the God of resolution, the sovereign God of providence, the God who sees us home, and yet who does it in such a way that causes us to be humbled again and again and again, who causes us to fall down before you again and again and again and acknowledge our utter dependence upon you. It's a gift, Father. It doesn't feel like it. I know if I find myself in a storm tomorrow, it's not going to feel like it. But Lord, these things are gifts to remind us that you are sovereign. They are gifts to remind us that you are the one who will bring us home and not we by our strength. And so keep us humble. In the storms, give us wisdom to hear and to obey and not to run away out of fear or anger or frustration that you're not doing it the way we want it done. Father, at the end of the day, all that matters is we get to Rome. All that matters is that we get to you, that, Father, we have all eternity with you. And so whether it's by smooth sailing or by stormy seas that breaks our ships into splinters, if it gets us to Rome, Lord, then get us there, we pray, that we might abide with you, the God of two plus two is four, the God of all reconciliation and harmony. How we long to be with you forever. Make it so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.